Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. Welcome back to people who have heard this thing before and welcome for the first time if you are just discovering the podcast. New listeners. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any listeners? I think we've got listeners. Yeah, I think we have. I think we... Well, I know we've got listeners. We've got wonderful listeners who who write in and and um and provide questions and feedback, which is always fantastic to hear. So thank you very much for your continued listenerhoodship. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to take you on a rite of passage. What do you think about rite of passage in this episode, Ben? I think it's a term that's been corrupted. Mm-hmm. I think that there can be a lot of goodness in conducting a rite of passage, but when I hear it now, I think of some weird paddling the fiery trail sort of um, college hazing initiation ceremony. I think it's been maybe a little hijacked, that term. Well, our guest today is Rick Pedley-Smith. He's a teacher who started teaching back in 1997, including some time in the UK where he worked as an outdoor education coordinator for an emotional and behavioural disorder unit in West London. Mm. That got him thinking a lot about children who had been raised in difficult circumstances. And after a couple of years in the UK, he came back to Australia and put a lot of energy into a rite of passage boys program. And the rite of passage program really focuses on those boys who are at risk, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. He's seen seen incredible benefits out of involving physicality as a vector to then draw out social and emotional, positive social and emotional behaviours. And a contribution also into charities and specifically the Commando Welfare Trust. Uh, They have a a close... Uh, alignment on donating into the Commando Welfare Trust. Mm-hmm. And the reverse is also true. The um, uh, the commandos in Sydney have made a good contribution back into uh, their time yep. and uh, into, into the program. So let's go through our checklist for a guest on this show. Is Rick going a little further? Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 100% he is. And is he leading a life less ordinary? Yep. Let's talk to him. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Prong. Good afternoon, Tim. And ben, we are joined on the line by Rick Pedley-Smith today. Rick, how are you going? Oh, I'm very good. Thanks, gentlemen. Yourself? Really well, thanks. And we're continuing our discussion on raising children. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rick, we're super interested in your insights, but before we get to that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now? 
Absolutely. Um, I grew up a, a country kid, so I grew up in a farm down in the Southern Highlands, which I think is a great way to, to start your life and all the outdoors. Um, always had lots of sport. Um, terrible. I call myself physically dyslexic, so my arms and legs don't know what they're doing. But uh, you know, you're in good company. You're in good company with Mister Try to Catch a Tennis Ball here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I suffer the same syndrome. Rick. Yeah, my um, one of my old teachers asked me when I ran into him in town once, "What are you doing?" So I'm a PE teacher, and the look on his face was <laughs> yeah, pretty priceless. Look, and so um, you know, I grew up down in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. Um, loved it down there. I fell into teaching by accident, really. I was, I did my HSC quite early. I was um, 16 during my trials, just 17 for the actual HSC. And I was looking at going into the army, of all things. And whilst I was, you know, filling in time for that, my mate sitting next to me, filling out his university application, said, what are you going to do? I said, oh, maybe the army, I'm not sure. He goes, I'm going to be a PE teacher. I went, oh, that's a pretty good backup. <laughs> and put that down and... You know, 20, I think 29 years later, still going at it. Here I am. Yeah. And so from that turning point, where did you go to initially? I, I imagine that being a young teacher, you know, you're not that far off sort of school age yourself. Was it Was it a big sort of that, that first day at school as a teacher? Was that a big uh, jump or a, a daunting sort of environment? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was just 21. And wow. I think I was quite a young 21. I look back at myself now and just go, oh, dear, you know, yeah. with some of the things I was, um, you know, doing back then. Um, to be honest, it, it wasn't too much of a jump. Like, I, I've always enjoyed, I've always taught swimming or coach sport in, in, some, in some manner. But I, I was teaching at a very tiny little central school in rural New South Wales. So there was 100 kids from kinder to year 12. So I think that was actually a, a pretty good stepping stone. And then I ended up in Sydney Southwest after that for mm -hmm. about five years, um, teaching in, you know, quite a, I found quite a challenging environment. And What sort of area that, of Sydney were you, Rick, out of interest? Um, I was in a place called Chester Hill. Yep. So out near Cabramatta Fairfield and yep. great school. I loved every second. It was, it was certainly tough as a, as a young guy there and, a lot of the kids were either my age or older because we used to um, coexist there with the intensive English center. Mm -hmm. And so we had quite a strong refugee program. Yep. So here I am at 21 teaching. I remember one guy who was, you know, 25, who was over from Cambodia. Yep. And it's always a bit weird to be called sir by somebody five years older than you. Yeah. Four years older than you. Yeah. yeah. And you had a little chapter in your life in the UK, Rick. And it looks to me on your bio that that might have been quite formative to where you are now with the Rider Boys passage. Um, definitely, yeah. So Sense of Adventure um, took me to the UK. It was going to be a 12-week trip. And several years later, you know, I, I found myself in the bottom of Guatemala speaking Spanish in a canoe with this old lady with no teeth. <laughs> so, you know, the, the world kind of, you know, changes as you go. But in the UK, I had a very fortunate opportunity to work for an emotional and behavioral disorder unit. So these were the kids that were expelled from a normal high school and on legal grounds weren't allowed to reattend a school. So what they did was they created different study centers and they had all, all different names over there at the time um, for that. Now it, it was really tough, but it was really amazing. So 
99% of the kids there were there because of um, an incredibly tough upbringing or, you know, you would almost say a lack of upbringing. Um, drugs were rife. Um, you know, a lot, some of the kids were used for child prostitution, you know, th those kind of things, which, you know, that etches pretty deeply into you yeah. um, when you communicate with that. Um, my time ended there, just, you know, obviously you can only work there for a few years. I, I came back to and ended up finding myself at an amazing high school. Hmm. And I've been there now for about the last 17 years. And to make a long story even longer, sorry, I, like I've been teaching for about 20 years. And at the time, I was kind of looking for another challenge. It, it, like I love it. But at the end of the day, I didn't feel like that I was making the difference that you know, I, I set out to do, if that makes sense. Hmm. Speaking closely with um, a couple of friends and you know, the senior executive within the school, they said, well, what do you think you'd like to do? Um, I said, I'd like to work with disengaged, you know, boys, especially teenagers. Um, I felt I was quite like that myself at school. School was, was a pretty good social time and, you know, there was lots of sport and that was about it for me. Um, yeah, fast forward five years and the program's been coming more and more successful. And now it's probably the, with my teaching, it's the major focus point outside of my family and my life. So we're really keen to talk about the program, but to start us off, I understand that there's lots of boys walking around with very full balloons. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so one, one activity we love to do when, when we actually present to either the boys, parents, or you know, other schools and educators is we just call it the balloon activity. So a, a friend of mine who's another teacher actually put me onto this idea. So... The way we try and get the teachers and parents to think about the guys and to realise why they're so hypervigilant at times is very simple. So you've got your balloon in front of you. Each activity or each thing I'm going to read out, if that's kind of happened to you in the past week, you know, you put two puffs in your balloon. So the first one is for you guys, you're, you're both parents, so you're, one of your kids might have been sick recently. So if you've done that, two, two puffs. Mm -hmm. Um, you're running late for work. Traffic was horrendous. Um, the one that always gets me is I'm running out the door and realise I can't find my phone. <laughs> so, you know, all, all these things add up. Uh, you've got a mortgage that needs paying, regardless of whether COVID has affected you yeah. financially, occupationally, however. Um, your partner's leaving. Bills are due. Your wife, this is the kid to be one for me. My wife sends me to the shop for three things. I come back with two. Mm -hmm. You know, two more puffs in the balloon. Someone close to me has passed away. Um, you can't see your dad due to COVID. Um, you've got a mountain of work waiting for you or you've got teenage kids. You know, each one of those is, is two puffs into the balloon. And what you'll find is all these educators will be sitting with a balloon twice the side of their head ready to pop. And this is kind of the analogy that we give. If this is what the kids are walking around with. Okay, but to take that, what we then do is we, we give everybody there a bit of just what we call a self-audit. So writing down just on a scrap piece of paper while you're there, how old are you? Uh, what's your ethnic background? Do you consider yourself religious or spiritual? Um, what's one key experience that you're faced in your life that has actually helped shape you? 
what do you believe your emotional intelligence level will be, say from one to 10, one being the lowest, 10 being very high? What's one thing you have done to overcome an obstacle in your life? And then finally, do you feel emotionally supported when you are faced with those obstacles in your life? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the educators and the parents involved, you know, they can write, write quite um, articulately. And then when you look at that, you're actually coming from a point of view where you've got a lot of life experience. You know, you've, as grown men, and especially, you know, in your field of leadership, you've got probably quite a strong emotional lexicon. You can describe in depth how you're actually feeling, you know, whether you're upset, sad, depressed, anxious, terrified, afraid. You know, you, you can go to any different um, level of description. So then, then we flip it once more. I'm sorry, we, I kind of talk in circles here. We flip it once more and we say, okay, let's now... Keep that in mind, you self-forward it. You've got a big, fat, juicy, full balloon there that's going to pop with, if I kept reading out three more things, your balloon's going to pop. Well, that's your temper. Or that's, I've had enough, I'm frustrated. You know, I lash out. Because for these guys, they don't have the life experience. They don't have, a lot of them don't have any emotional support. They haven't had to overcome this kind of obstacle before there's there's no background knowledge and rick i'd almost this has really resonated with me and not only as you're older you have the emotional lexicon and the experience but potentially you also have the ability to uh not have to as a man not have to sort of be the bluff bravado you can have a bit more vulnerability maybe as you get a bit older whereas i remember back I never wanted to be seen to be weak as a teenager. Maybe that's playing into these things as well, that they, they always feel they have to challenge, uh, take these things head on and, and not be able to show some vulnerability. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we ask all the, the guys involved in the program that we've done, and, you know, we haven't just been at my school. We've been at quite a few schools now mm-hmm. and different areas and camping things. Um, and it's like, well, what's an emotion you're allowed to show? Anger and laughter, or anger and happiness. It's like, okay, what about vulnerability? Oh, no way. No. Okay, what about the the fact that you're quite anxious? No. No, I don't want them to think I'm weak. Mm. We we had a, a quote from one kid that goes, I want to be able to tell my parents I'm scared. I want to tell them that I'm afraid. I want to tell them I just want a hug, but I don't want them to think I'm a pussy. Mm. You know, so this is... You know, you hit the nail on the head. This is the crux of the problem: is that they believe to be a man, you know, you can't shed a tear. You know, men solve problems; men don't have problems. <laughs> and so that's one of the things we work around. That's, that's the main thing we work around. Because we spoke recently with Steve Bidoff, who referred to us as big soft mammals. I think we're all big soft mammals, and yep. and we were talking about this concept of resilience, and he said. You know, that the big soft mammals, when they are injured, they go somewhere to heal. They need support. They need time off. And they need to be able to express those emotions that you just mentioned. Uh, a lot of teenage boys are so scared of. You know, they associate um, showing vulnerability, showing emotion, showing love, showing tenderness with weakness, which this is a problem. Yeah, it's a massive problem. And it, I think it comes back to that, you know, very old saying of, don't confuse kindness with weakness. 
Mm. You know, it, it's good to be kind. It's good to feel your emotions. Like, I, I mean, anger is a good emotion. Like, it, it's useful. But it's where you use it and how you use it. So for the boys to actually be able to um, understand what they're feeling is, you know, part of the lesson here. So one of, one of the things, oh, we've worked closely with quite a few um, psychologists. Now, we're, we're not psychologists. We're, we're teachers, but and we're doing as much research as we can. But we were advised to say that one of the things you can do is to look at the emotion. Okay, if I'm angry, what's my physiological response to that? What happens first? Does my neck get tight? Does my jaw clench? Does my heart start to race? If you can understand the physiology of it, then it's kind of like your own early warning system. Okay, so you, you understand, all right, my breathing's increasing, I'm feeling hot, my face is flushed, all right, I'm getting angry, this is the volcano about to explode. Hmm. And if the boys do have somewhere to go, someone to talk to or an activity that they can do, that kind of gives them the early warning where they can move off to, you know, like Steve was saying, have a place where they can just be themselves, feel that emotion and still be safe. talk about the rite of passage absolutely what motivated you to to start it i mean i think we've touched on some themes there but you've also said you're living a very busy life you know dedicated family man teacher and also this program so why well six years ago i had my first son and then my second son four years ago and to be totally honest i felt like an absolute fraud it's like, here I am, I'm trying to raise two boys. Mm. And basically, I didn't feel that I had anything together yet. You know, and I looked around, and I just didn't feel that I was the role model that my sons needed. Now, we're our own harshest critic, I understand mm. that. But I was looking at different kids at school. And there was one person in particular who was amazing for me in my class. And for a couple of the other teachers, you know, I'm I'm a very mediocre teacher to say that, you know, to give myself the biggest rap, mediocre was about it. But I connected really well with him. And it's like, well, why can you be good in my class and be an absolute terror in somebody else's class? And he goes, oh, respect. And so we, we literally sat there for about 20 minutes chatting, well, what do you respect? What do you find? And then I thought, okay, here we go. I'm searching for this in my own life to be the best possible dad that I can. And to me, that is, you know, that's the role of my life. That's mm -hmm. what I'm doing. Cool. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, hang on. If I'm, you know, thinking so deeply about this, where else can this take me? So I ended up writing the program as, as well as I could, pitching it to the school executive and Luckily enough, they loved it. I'm in an incredibly supportive environment there. And it's just continually grown over the past five years. And so to the, the, the topic, uh, to the name, sorry, the title, The Rite of Passage, um, I feel that the concept of initiation rites has been kind of demonised. We associate them with frat house hazing and these these 
kind of things that get out of control. And yet, from our experience um, within a military special forces environment, in a very tribal sense, the selection course is exactly that. It is something that every, in this case, man has done to to gain access to the unit. It's a common uh, bond between this group of brothers. Um, and by and large, it's an extremely positive thing. Um, it, it doesn't have those negative connotations. And I was really interested to see you use those terms very deliberately, concepts mm. like initiation, concept like rite of passage. It's felt to me like you were re, um, re-appropriating yeah. these in a positive sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what you know, I was aiming for. I mean, why do teenagers move in packs? Like, and in the military, talking to a few friends that I have that have served, it's, yeah, you're there to do a job, but you're there for the guy next to you. Mm. Okay. I, I was very, very lucky about 14 years ago, I did the Kokoda track with um, one particular company. And it actually went through the military history. And you're reading that these guys were 17, 18 years old. I mean, 18 was the average age. Mm. And that was incredible conditions to be in, let alone, you know, in combat. Mm. And I feel that society these days is so litigious. You know, there, there isn't um, a systemized form of initiation, you know, where it actually delineates boyhood to manhood anymore. And so I think the guys chase it on their own. Whether And that's what I said before, whether they are driving fast cars, drinking, you know, trying to get as many girlfriends as possible, all those kind of things. And as an educator and, you know, an adult, too often we see this, um, either they end up in the hospital or worse than morgue. Mm. So I was very fortunate to have a couple of phone conversations with a guy you know well, Keith Fennell, mm. um, who was teaching here in southwestern Sydney, not far from where I was. And, you know, we, we got chatting. And after that conversation, you know, I, I kind of, Look back and thought, all right, the, these guys need to move forwards out of time. So, so how can we do that? You know, you look at the military history of you know fighting for your mate, not for you know any other kind of cause. Flag, or, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, these these guys need to buy it. They need a cause. So we created initiation, and for all the, the CrossFitters out there, um, we did Murph. So it's a one mile mm-hmm. run. I think it was 100 chin-ups. We substituted that because we didn't have chin-up bars for burpees. Yep. 200 push-ups, 300 squats, squats. one one-mile run. Um, and we gave them a five-kilo torsion bar. Anytime the torsion bar touched the ground, whatever we were on was an extra 50 reps. And we were given, you know, or we've worked with kids that were considered, you know, very unlikely to achieve much. And in all the years that we've been doing it, that pole's touched the ground twice. Wow. You know, these kids just went for it. They, they realised that they're in it together and it was a, an incredible bonding experience for them. So after that, they had presented um, a hat that we made for them, a, a T-shirt that had, you know, a rite of passage on it and a set of dog tags. And it had their name on one side and an inscription on the other that we thought actually suited the persona of that of that boy the teachers whatever the kids do we do no matter what it is so mm. they're doing initiation 
we're doing initiation with them. And at the end, we had dog tags made up for us and the kids actually presented those to us. Our one says, true leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. Mm. And, you know, which is the actual objective of the whole program. Mm. Earlier on, you said when you had your kids, you felt like a fraud. And I think most of us (laughs) felt like that. And it reminded me of a workshop that we ran not so long ago with a group of clients. And all of these clients were handpicked by the company to attend this leadership workshop. And the topic of um, this particular module in the workshop was imposter syndrome. And no one was talking about it. I mean, these are people looking across the table at their peers, wondering who was going to blink first and no one was going to come up with any of that vulnerability that exposed themselves. And one of the girls said, I've had a severe case of imposter syndrome and it was when I recently carried my baby home from the hospital. She said, you get a manual for your refrigerator, but you don't get a manual for your kids. So my question really relates a bit to the blueprint for the program. Um, How do you come up with it? Uh, I mean, clearly there's a physicality part. Boys love that physicality component. But what else is in the blueprint? Um, How are you creating your manual? Basically, I looked at everything. How would I do this? And I pretty much went in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) And we're laughing, but that's pretty much it. we, we, the physicality is important. I mean, boys are born to move. There's a great quote that says, um, we spend the first two years of our son's lives getting them to walk and talk and the next 16 years telling them to sit down and shut up. Yeah. So it's all right. How can we build in an environment where these guys are comfortable? So I thought, all right, most boys quite enjoy the physicality. So, you know, we, we do a lot of physical activities and then we introduce the topics for that. Secondly, we want, to, we want to take these guys out of their comfort zone. So I'm a very strong believer that if you don't have some kind of adversity, and for these guys, we, it's controlled adversity, there's not much potential to grow. Like you, you might just stay doing the same thing, but you're not growing. It's almost like you're putrefying, that you, you, you're staying stuck and you end up rotting. Mm. So it's how, how can we then move these kids forward? What is a way that we can build on their last success all the way through? It, the way we do it is we, we have all these different catchphrases. This one came from a professor down in Perth, uh, Dr. Ian Lillico, and he, he tells you to build their internal CV. So the better their kid's CV, the more resilient they are. Right? We, we are looking at having the kids build self-esteem versus peer esteem. Peer esteem is where you go and you're meant to go, hey, you know what would be funny? I'm like, go do that. And because you want to fit in, that's what you go and do. So this is what's stopping them from making those decisions. You know, they're based on peer acceptance, not on what is best for me at this point in time. Mm. So we then looked at a whole list of virtues that are specific in guys and there's the research shows there's 52 which is quite specific um we then look at all right if these are the virtues how do we uncover these in the boys so i'll I'll jump back to sorry one other story is we were working the sand hills in sydney as as ex-special forces guys that were running um you know like a, a bit of a resilience program there 
And the guy waiter who I, I work with is my partner in crime here in the actual program. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about our 60th run back up the sand shoes. <laughs> and he cramped out. And two kids that we thought we'd have the biggest problem with in trying to reach and turn around, without breaking, you know, stride or a word, they've run back down the sand hill, picked him up and dragged him to the top. So they'd finished. They were done. They could sit there and rest. But they saw him in trouble and they ran down. And it's like, Mm. here we go. Here are these virtues. Mm. This is where it's going to come from. And the blueprint grows from that, okay? Use a physical activity, break it down into what we saw. How can you then use this in your relationships, in your school life, and just in yourself? to build your own CV and self-respect. And how do you debrief that and identify that that was a positive action by those boys? Is that an important part of the program? Yeah, it, it is. So for every physical activity, we have quite a few hours of debrief with them. Um, we make them change out of their school uniform, so they have to wear their dog tags and their hat just as a sign of respect. You know, you've earned these, you're part of the brother brotherhood. Um, and then we break it down. So we, we create a workbook and literacy here is also a key component. So without literacy skills developing, they don't develop. You know, they literally do not build that emotive lexicon. They can't express themselves. So we get them to write. They can write it in bullet points. They can write it in um, running writing. They can write it with their feet, whatever they want to do. But they have to describe what they were afraid of was it actually as bad as they imagined? And then what have I learned from this? And then each person takes the time to explain. Mm. Now, like we said before, whatever the kids do, we do. So the teacher or the instructor goes first. You know, so I was worried that my physical fitness wasn't up to scratch to actually survive this. I'm worried that you know, I'm meant to be you know, your role model and that I wouldn't be able to be able to mm. effectively do that job. And then you realise, you know, you've got your brothers around you. They kind of pick you up and drag you along as you go. Um, And then from that, we get them to break that down even further. What made me think in the first place that I couldn't do that? Like, I've never attempted it, so I don't know. So why did I instantly assume that I couldn't? And that's when we really start to get to work with the boys because you'll often find it's the activity isn't what scares them. It's the build-up to that and it's their own lack of self-belief that um, causes all their issues, Mm. if that makes sense. 100% it does. A lot of what we've spoken about, Rick, and I'm in my mind drawing parallels to things like the military, our own experiences, you know, you've got a shared hardship, you've got artifacts like a set of dog tags and a hat, in our case, it was a Sandy Beret, all of these things that unify you as a group um, of of brothers, as we've said, and we're Mm -hmm. using very deliberately masculine um, uh, sort of words. How do we avoid that becoming elitist, exclusive, and toxic? You know, how do 
and and this is something that throughout our career we've we've wrestled with as well, you know. And and these are, are things that that most modern militaries uh, deal with, and a lot of these uh, professional sporting teams also face. How do you um, forge that fraternity, mm-hmm. but have it in such a way that it can support people who are outside of it as well? Mm. Um, it's a really good question because what we didn't want to achieve was exactly like you said, like have it as a boys club. Yeah. You know, the hoorah, look at us, you know, we're tougher than you because we can do this and I've got this and that. It basically boils down to sense of purpose. Like the, these boys that we work with, you know, within all different schools that we've been at and environments and cultures, they're terrified, terrified of failure. But if you give a guy a sense of purpose, he belongs to something that's bigger than himself. And again, I actually owe this one to, to Keith, talking to him. Um, and he was saying, you know, if, if people belong to something bigger than themselves, they've got a path they can follow. Um, so in this instance, it boils down to two things. Like I said, sense of purpose and altruism. So part of what the boys have to do is it keeps going up by five grand every year. The original year was 5,010, we're raising $15,000 this year for the Commando Welfare Trust. Mm. Now, we're incredibly lucky to have a wife of uh, a soldier that sadly took his own life after returning from deployment. He, I think he'd had like nine deployments. Yeah. You know, a very, very experienced person who, you know, it, it's a horrendous story. Yeah. Um, left two kids and... You know, these boys or young men, as they're on their way, um, you know, we we said originally, you you have to belong to something bigger than yourself. It's all about altruism. Do something for somebody else who will never know about it. They never know it was you. They won't meet you. And that does stop that kind of boys club elitist mentality. You know, service, we're here to help. Um, In the 10 months that we're running the program, (laughs) we raised $7. Okay, and that's because we spoke about it one day. Honky goes, I got seven bucks for my lunch. Here you go. I did that. Um, we had Gwen Shona, she came out and spoke to the boys. And how she said, if you could raise five grand, then that would pay for two kids to see a counselor for six months, it would pay for a camp that's run by the defense force of with other kids who have lost, you know, parents who were in service. Mm-hmm. And if there was enough left over, it's going to pay their school fees and their sporting fees. The guys raised, I think they raised five and a half thousand dollars in four weeks. You know, they they just went for it. And Gwen brought in her husband's berets and medals and she passed them around. One particular student was like, man, this is heavy. And she says, yeah, the medals are quite big. He goes, no, no, not the medals. This is heavy. (laughs) And he was one of the key drivers then because he then belonged to something bigger than himself. You know, and Steve Goodoff talks about this, you know, your life's not actually as important as you think it is. Mm-hmm. You know? But if you can do something where you help others, you belong to something bigger, you, you, know, you create a sense of purpose and you become a positive contributor to society, not just somebody who can look down and say, I belong to this group, therefore you should do as I say. Mm. I, I hope that kind of answered your question. Very much. How is it affecting schoolwork 
um, the rite of passage? Are you seeing, uh, you know, effects back in school from these boys? We are, and in quite a few of the schools that you know we've they've got localized versions of it. Um, all the boys have to sign a contract, so you know they've got to actually take ownership. <clears throat> excuse me for their actions and what they do. So they've got to attend 85% of all lessons, which for some of these guys, you know, that's a big step up. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing they've got to do is pick two subjects that they really don't like, and they have to get above 75% in particular assessment task or test or whatever it is. Now, they've got multiple times that they can just keep resubmitting it and doing, you know, the, the mark's quite arbitrary. You could pick 100%, whatever. It's mm. the fact that they learn to work. Okay, mm. I didn't reach my goal. Go back. Where's my mistake? Here it is. Go again. Ooh, still didn't reach my goal. Okay. Um, so that itself just builds their resilience to receive you know, negative feedback. No, you didn't, you didn't achieve it. Go again. Mm. Um, and that has seen a lot of benefits within their schoolwork. It doesn't make them amazing students and then you know they might not be knocking on the door of a 99.9 atar mm. but they're willing to work they're willing to risk they're, they're putting themselves out there to instead of i'm not doing this it's stupid as a deflection they're willing to give the assignment a go to put their hand up in class i guess they're willing to risk failure because they know the more you fail the more you're actually going to develop as a person mm. And maybe it's the same question asked in a slightly different way. How are you seeing demand? I mean, are boys, how much demand from boys to join the program are you seeing? Um, it's, it's, it was very surprising to say the least. So we keep it small. You know, we, we got told with something like this, you can't stretch yourself too thin. You need bang for your buck in regards to this. And we'll talk about the hidden costs later on if that's okay. Mm. Um, as one of the things, you know, you, you get your after-school detention. I, you know, I spent a lot of time there myself. Um, and did I learn anything from it? Nothing, not a thing. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, well, let's start a workout. We'll come down, we'll just do some, you know, basic calisthenics, get a couple of kettlebells, some battle ropes, some torsion piles. Um, if you get an after-school detention, instead of sitting in a room in silence, you have to come and work out with me. That was great because I got two, three, four kids. And by the end of first term, I had 35 kids turning up. <laughs> you know? Were they so, deliberately <laughs> mucking up at school to come and do a workout? Yeah, well, no. I, I probably should have qualified that a bit better. No, these guys were coming <laughs> out to train. Yeah, voluntarily. Right. Um, so that was good. It, it's, it's growing and growing. Um, there's a lot more acceptance. We've been to certain schools and spoken to parents and, you know, parental bodies and stuff, and they go, yeah, but I don't want my kid labelled as a naughty kid. It's like it's not for naughty boys. Like, they're not a naughty kid. Mm. And once they actually see what it's about, then, yeah, it becomes more and more popular, mm. which, you know, is, is quite a good thing. Now, Rick, on The Unforgiving 60, we love a bit of literature, and you were kind enough to share the the workbook, the Rite of Passage workbook with us. Yes. We were delighted to see if in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if that's not a, a a handbook for the Rite of Passage for boys or girls. Oh, he's sucking up, Ben. <laughs> he must be sucking, Who's up, sucking to up to us. Rick is. Rick. 
No, I, I think Rick's poem. seen the same same genius no, in, in Kipling's, yeah. <laughs> Kipling's uh, words as we have. But <laughs> I was also really stoked to see um, a Heinlein quote that Tim and I both love. Mm. And if you can endure it, I'll, I'll recite it for our listeners because it, I think it's really important. A human being should be able to change a nappy, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyse a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently and die gallantly. Specialisation is for insects. Now, this is brilliant. I, I first came across this through CrossFit, actually. It was quoted somewhere in there in the methodology of their planning. But what does it mean to you and how has it influenced the Rites of Passage program? Well, um, you guys are actually responsible for that. Because <laughs> 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 I've listened to your podcast and that was actually one of the things that went, oh, give me a that's look awesome. at that. And that's where it came from. Oh, um, I did actually. not know that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm delighted. That's great. It's a great bit of yeah. literature. I'll, I'll get to your question, but my dad read If To Me all the time, and he had mm. it sitting up in his office um, at home, and his dad gave it to him. And so that's why I put it in. If you've read it, I actually write about, you know, my dad always read this to me, and we discussed it a lot. So that's where that came from. But as to that quote, it's, I don't know, it just encapsulated everything in one little paragraph that we want to achieve. You don't have to be the world's greatest academic. Like you don't have to be searching out for, you know, they, they call it the Holy Trinity, doctor, lawyer, engineer, um, you know, and you think, but the more things you do, the more the world opens up to you, the more you see, the more you experience, the more you learn. So experience everything that you can. Um, it, it kind of follows that other, excuse me, that other quote, you know, the, the world's a book. And if you only read one, you know, if you don't travel, it's like reading the same page mm. to very poorly mm. paraphrase that. No, no. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about what's a good man. And we, we were so fortunate. We had Mark Donaldson VC come in and actually work with the boys for, you know, quite a few hours. And, he made the the comment of, do you really want to be just a good man? And like all the boys were looking at him, he goes, I know lots of good blacks. He said, I'll go and have a beer with them. He said, but I won't let them raise my kids. He said, there's a difference between a, being a good man and being good at being a man. Mm. And that pretty much made us rewrite the whole program. <laughs> mm. And that to me, that quote sums it up. You need multiple experiences in your life to identify sense of purpose, your identity, uh, self-confidence. I mean, if you can con a ship, butcher a hog, mm. all those different things, then how big is your internal CV? Yeah, that That's going to make you bulletproof. And the thing I especially love about that quote is it's it's not just about having the mechanics to be able to con a ship or know where to cut a hog, but it's about... Having done it, you know you've you've experienced that, and you you can empathise with the person who's at the helm of a ship in a stormy weather, or you know who's seeing the blood of an animal. You know it it gives you, I think, to our initial discussion about this emotional lexicon, it gives you some level of empathy for what people are going. And to quote Charlie Munger, it provides that lattice work of models you can draw from a bunch of different pieces of experience and and emotional connection. 
Mm. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's right. Like, <laughs> what to me, if you had to ask, describe what is a good man, then empathetic. To understand that, you know, somebody is going through something, you need as much experience in your own life as you can, not to mimic what's happening to them, mm. but to come from a place where you can actually go, all right, I haven't lived that. And therefore, I can't, you know, qualify that with a comment. But I understand what it's like to suffer. <clears throat> Excuse me. I understand what it is like to be outside my comfort zone, to push myself, to challenge myself in as many different facets of life as I can. And um, I think, you know, you can link it back to, um, I heard it said once, oh, you know, you are so lucky. And the guys turn around and go, yeah, funnily enough, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah it's funny. My, my father used to say that a lot. Um, and, you know, to your point about your father reading If to you, that, that was a big thing from my dad, that the, the harder, harder you work, the luckier you get. It's a beautiful saying. Do you have a recommended reading list, Rick, for the boys? Um, how long have you got? <laughs> yeah, huh. yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you do, um, Mark Donaldson VC, his book Crossroad must be on there. Here's a guy mm. who lost his father early, mm. then lost his mother, still in a cold case, um, was brought up by his second family, and then arrived at this crossroad of being just a shitty kid doing bad things or joining the army. Uh, that story is super inspiring. Yeah, he, look, we were so lucky because the first thing the kids get given, sorry, I didn't actually mention that, when they get their dog tags, their hat and their shirt, they get that book. Oh, wow. That's yeah. fantastic. And um, it's compulsory reading. Mm. So every couple of weeks they have to bring that in and one of our sessions just sit and read, mm. you know, obviously for the, the fact that they're developing their skill. But he spoke to them in such a way and Excuse me. I've, I've honestly never seen a person come and present that can just cut straight to the point. And he goes, look, your background and your life does not make your decisions for you. It influences how you feel at a particular time. He goes, but you know right from wrong. He goes, if you're choosing wrong, you are choosing wrong. And that resonated with the boys. They were, you know, if you can get these guys speechless, you're doing well. Yeah. And they just sat there staring. And one particular person had an incredibly similar story to Mark's. So not to go into too much detail, mm. but lost both parents very, very early. And for him, he, it, it lit him up. And I think... You know, no, because I'm not really answering your question, I'm sorry. But the fact that we were able to get Mark in, he made one sentence and it flipped this kid's life, <laughs> like on its head. So if Mark is listening, thank you very much. You you literally, literally saved a kid's life, which is pretty amazing. Rick, that's incredible. And it it actually touches back on a question I wanted to ask when you were talking about your time in the UK and some of the, the boys you were working with in the school there. And it 
uh, made me think back to um, the conversation we had with Steve Biddulph, uh, who said that you need to show a boy what a good man looks like. And it seemed to me that a lot of the people in your school in the UK and potentially some of the boys you deal with at the moment have never really seen what a good man looks like. No. We, we, we got to present at one particular school, okay? And we, we get the boys to write out what scares you. Mm. And you get your usual answer, like heights, spiders, Clowns. whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> this this kid wrote down that I'll end up like my dad. Jesus, yeah, and it. I'm sorry, like I, I get quite emotional just talking about this because yeah. this isn't just you know a story. This is a kid who's out there, mm. you know, and we've been in contact with that school. You know, like how's he going? How's he doing? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. One of the things we highlight is that, um, again, reflects back to Mark, is that we had his Instagram account up and another sporting person's Instagram who's quite famous for doing all the wrong things. The guy who's famous for all the wrong things had 140,000 followers. Mm. And not to belittle Mark, he had 16,000. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are these guys learning? Yeah. You know, if, if this is their role model yeah. compared to Mark, the, a guy that could turn his life around and, you know, for no other reason than he wanted to be a better person. Mm. Um, yeah, it it made a, a really big question for us and how do we tackle this? And we are not experts by far and away. You know, we are, we are finding our feet as we go. Mm. But what we thought was, hang on, here, here's a really good opportunity. And again, um, it reflects back to a conversation with Keith and, you know, one conversation can turn your world on its head. Mm. And he said when he got to the regiment, he, you know, felt like, yeah, I I made through selection, but now what? Um, He said he found the absolute iconic regimental soldier Mm. and he just wanted to imitate that person. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do with the boys. But if that father figure isn't there, what do they do? Now, he, here's a crazy statistic. 80, if you can have a role model, a non-family male role model in a teenage boy's life, they're around 80% less likely to, to turn to suicide. 80%. Hmm. Like, that is huge we have experienced schools ringing up and people talking, just going, look, you know, we, we try to get the dads in, but the dads aren't there. And in mm-hmm. the vast majority of cases, which as tragic as it sounds, they're not there. No one's there or the wrong person is there. And we are also very lucky to have some amazing dads that are really backing us up on the program. So I don't want it to sound like, you know, we only work with yeah. bad people. We don't, yeah. we've got amazing people there. How did how did dads respond to the program? Well, the the biggest comment we ever get was, "Geez, I wish this was around when I was a kid." Mm, yeah, right. You know, and I wouldn't have made the same mistakes. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have a dad that was always there, incredibly supportive. So, 
you know, this is how lucky I was. My dad mm. did not miss a single sporting game I ever played from when I was a kid to finishing high school and then moved away from home. Mm. And if you've ever seen me play sport, you don't want to sit there and watch that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a travesty to sport itself. Uh, you know, so a lot of that I reflect back. Um, the role models that the boys are chasing aren't role models. Mm you know, in this instance, and that's what we're trying to do. One of the other activities is, okay, you write down what it means to be a good man. I think it's the first, second page in the book. Yeah. Mm. And then we'll actually break that down. And you know what surprised me is you don't hear, oh, big, tough, tattoos, great car, you know. Um, 100,000 followers on Instagram. Yeah, earns heaps of money. It looks after my mum. Mm. looks after me, puts food on the table. And the, the kicker is I can go to with a problem. Yeah, mm. That's what they describe as a good man. Dad, I've got a problem. What do I do? Which is the, the Steve Biddulph backbone and heart. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he, he talks about two things, the need for backbone. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to be strong and resilient and available and supportive, mm-hmm. but you also need heart. You know, you need to be able to show, to use your word, empathy, Mm-hmm. Um, sympathy and love and understanding and those two things are critical and he arrived at those two words through surveying um, wives and mothers and asking them what do you think are the things that comprise a great man and a whole heap of different words came back but they all ultimately grouped into those two words backbone and heart mm. Be honest, my copy of his book's pretty much in a folder because I've read it so many times. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, we, yeah. Um, we were obviously gushing through the Steve Bidoff episode because, yeah, he fundamentally changed my relationship with my dad, my son, my brother, and my mates. Yeah, yeah. incredible that, that he can have that sort of influence through something that thick, yeah. he says, well, holding up fingers two inches apart. You know, you read 200 words and... You know, and you, can, you know you what? Have... It did exactly the same thing for me. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I can reconnect with my dad and other people um, just because you go, well, just ring him. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Um, what's one, what's one your thing? Oh, sorry. You go. Yeah. Sorry. One thing we have done um, is it's when the boys don't have those role models around is we've been working very closely with the commando association. Mm. Um And the plan at the moment is, you know, pre-COVID was we do 24-hour endurance hikes, um, 48 hours. We, you know, we really take these guys outside their comfort zone. Um, The Commando Association has now found a whole, funnily enough, a whole bunch of very willing men to come along. Mm. And they're going to do all those activities with us. One of the things we then do is we get the boys to cook a three-course meal. You know, Connor ship, slaughter a hog, mm. cook a three-course meal. Um, and they serve it to their parents. And so they have to actually sit and eat together and converse. There's no music. There's not us talking to them. It's just we sit and we eat. Um, some families don't have that. Um, and in some activities in certain places where we've actually run this, um, you know, some have no one turn up at all, which is, you know, to me, it's still heartbreaking. I still tear yeah. up every time I think about it. And that's, yeah. um, these guys are going to come along. 
So even if a parent can't make it from whatever reason, the boy knows they've got someone there. They've got a mentor. They've got someone they can call and talk to. Mm. Um, one male role model in, you, in your life for one year, 80% less likely to turn to suicide. Yeah. One thing that's really evident is your absolute passion for the program. And so on the principle of thinking big, what's your vision for it? I mean, how would you ascribe success? When would you rock back in your rocking chair and think, that's awesome, I'm happy now? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. We, we very much got caught up in, and we, we got quite off task and off track. And it's like, well, you know, the guys in the schools we work at, they're, they're still not that academic. They're still, <clears throat> excuse me, still not getting 100%. They're still not getting 80%. They're still not getting 30%. Until one of the psychologists that we, we consult quite frequently went, oh, you've lost the plot. <laughs> I went, yeah. And she goes, you're dealing with five boys that now regularly see a psychologist who are no longer, you know, thinking those kind of thoughts. Mm. She said, there's your success. That's your metric. That's our metric. Are the kids safe? Are the kids happy? Spine and heart. (laughs) You know, it it comes back to that. So that is how we measure the success. We don't look at in a dollar sign. Like we don't charge for anything. You know, there's, there's a fee to get us out there and that covers kind of petrol and, and whatever. Um, we're, we're looking to build that into a business. So that is definitely part of it. Um, slow going, especially when you're like myself and have no idea how it works. <laughs> but I think success has to be real. It has to be, have you made a difference? Mm. Um, yeah. Has that kid got one person that they now can look at? Not me obviously, but have you opened the doors for that kid to find someone? And to your point, you know, these things, they don't come for free. How have you been funding them and how will you be funding them? Um, With my school in particular, we've been incredibly lucky that the PNC, so the parents and citizen group, um, have been able to help us. But basically if... You write a letter or an email or get on the phone. You say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. There's a hell of a lot of businesses that go, yeah, we'll get behind that. And they either charge and they yeah, charge us half price or nothing at all. That's awesome. But there is, there is no actual pool of funds itself that pays us to write this. This is, and I'm not trying to make myself sound great. It's just the way it is. Um, my school supports me incredibly well. Hmm. Um, but we don't actually, you know, this isn't a paying job. And for people that were interested in knowing more, Rick, how would they find out about you and the Rite of Passage program? Um, we are on some social media. I'm pretty terrible at it, but that's, you know, one of the, the <laughs> things that we're building. So they can find us at PF Welfare and Engagement on Facebook or just email PF Welfare and Engagement at gmail.com. Is Fantastic. probably the easiest way. That's awesome, and and we'll make sure we link those in our show notes. So hopefully, some of our listeners can uh, log on and find out a little more. But Rick, thank you. This has been a, a really 
enjoyable conversation and you, you know apart much. from just having this conversation with us thank you for what you're doing for these boys mm, absolutely and and that emotion that came through that shows that shows true meaning to us yeah yeah well thank, thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it we are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities if this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness. Wow.